Lindsay tells a story uh, from her childhood. She, had a, she has a younger brother, David, who's about two years younger than, than she is. And there was a time where uh, she was babysitting David while their parents were away. And, uh, and she was try, being, by her own admission, a bit controlling, a bit bossy, sort of telling him what to do. And David didn't really like that. And so it ended up there was a struggle. There was, there was conflict among them. And Lindsay was trying to force her brother David to, to go into timeout. And so she was dragging him by the ankles across the floor. And he was grabbing furniture and, and picture frames and anything to get his hands on to try to keep himself from going to timeout. And so the, the, the living room is, is a mess and things are falling over. And now they're at the door and they're fighting with each other over the doors. He's trying to pull the door shut. And then there's maybe an injury, perhaps feigned, uh, and she's like, oh, no, you just slam my fingers in the door. I need to call the ambulance and have them come get me. And now David's in tears. No, please don't call the ambulance. They're going to find out. Just this big dramatic scene. Until the headlights appear through the window. Their parents are coming home. And in an instant, all of the drama, all of the chaos, all of the things that come before cease, and they make a truce. All right, if we'll put things back together, I won't say anything if you won't say anything. Okay, great. They put things back together in quick order, and by the time their parents walk in the door, right, everything looks like it's hunky-dory, right? No injuries, no furniture all over the place, right? Why did they feel the need to put things back into order and to prepare themselves and their home because they knew that the moment of accounting was approaching? They knew that they would stand before, as it were, a judge, and they needed to be ready. Well, in a much fuller way and a more sobering way, that is the, the reality that we see unfolded in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. I'm going to read for you uh, these five verses, and then we'll walk through them together. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. May God bless his word to us this morning. Three essential realities that we must see as this scene unfolds. Number one. No one escapes the judgment throne. No one escapes the judgment throne. The vision, this part of the vision opens with the image of a great white throne and the one who was seated on it or him who was seated on it. This, this whole scene uh, echoes deeply from the vision of Daniel in Daniel 7 which we've seen cited numerous times throughout the book of Revelation. There's a lot of the, the beast and kingdom kind of imagery that, that, is, that is clearly a reference to Daniel. 
Uh, and this image of the Son of Man coming to reign and being given a kingdom. If you, in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, it says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. So clearly this scene of God on his throne and the myriads of people before him and the books being opened and court being in session is, is called to mind in this vision that God has given to the Apostle John about that in time judgment where everyone will stand before the holy God on his judgment throne. We've seen thrones number of times in Revelation, and this probably the clearest uh, reference within the book right here is back in chapter 4, verse 2, where the, after the letters to the seven churches, the, the vision proper, if you will, sort of began. And it began with this, Behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And then that passage went and unfolded the glory and the power and majesty of that scene as we saw God ruling and reigning in sovereignty over his creation from the throne. And so it makes it very clear when he says, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. This is God. This is God. And I think it's best to regard this perhaps specifically as Christ, as Jesus himself, to whom the Father has given authority to judge over and over throughout the New Testament. We're told that one place where it's very clear is in John chapter 5. Verses 22 and 23, Jesus says of himself, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So Jesus, that's just one place, but there's many throughout the New Testament where Jesus is said to be the one on behalf of his father who is judging. So I think it's right to see him who is seated on the throne as Christ. And indeed, some will call this the great white throne of Christ or the judgment seat of Christ or something like that. So I think that that's right. This is, this is the lamb. This is Christ on the throne. And the, the throne being white is a symbol of, of purity. Throughout Revelation, we've seen white garments and, and, and white horses as symbols of purity and of power. And so this white throne represents the purity and the wisdom and the power and authority of Christ as he sits on this throne to judge. We see the passing away of the first earth and heaven. This is very interesting. It says, uh, from before the throne, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. The earth and the sky have just sort of left. They've, they've departed. There's no place for them to be. Back in Revelation chapter 6, verse 14, in a different image of the sort of end times return of Christ, it said the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. Every mountain and island was removed from its place. We've seen that in a couple of places in Revelation. So this world, the earth as it is, will come to an end, which prepares the way for a new earth, a new heaven, a new creation, 
that we'll look at next week in chapter 21. But it's interesting that at this, the resurrection and the judgment where everyone stands before the throne of Christ, the first earth, the earth that we know, is, is passed away. It's done with. It is fled away from him. And this is a universal resurrection. The main point that I'm emphasizing here is that no one escapes the judgment throne. And you can see here that there is nobody who doesn't stand before the throne of Christ in this judgment scene. He says, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And that is often a a phrase in Revelation indicating all people of all kinds, the great and the small, everybody. We're standing before the throne. Back in chapter 11, verse 18, it said that the time for the dead to be judged had arrived, both small and great, that very same phrase. And so the time of judgment has come and everybody stands before it. I think implied here is a universal resurrection. That is, every person who has died within history is physically raised and stands before this judgment throne. And this would be the the second resurrection, although that language is not used. Uh, Revelation spoke of the first resurrection back in uh, earlier in this very chapter of those who were raised to reign with Christ in the millennial age. And so I believe that the first resurrection is the spiritual resurrection. It is the transporting of souls to be with Christ during this age. And then the second resurrection is this physical resurrection of all at the end of the age when Christ returns and so you see the sea giving up the dead and Hades and death and Hades giving up the dead and we'll come to that in just a minute and uh, so everyone who has died is raised at this point and stands before the judgment throne Hebrews nine twenty seven tells us that it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment this is what every person without exception faces so the earth has passed away there's nowhere else to go Once you're raised and there's no earth to be on, where are you going to be? You're going to be before the throne of Christ. Every human being, whether living or dead at the time of Christ's return, has an appointment at the great white judgment throne of God. Friends, this is in your future. This moment is certainly coming. You will one day stand before the judgment seat of God himself as Christ issues judgment in righteousness and truth. Prepare for it. Live today in light of it. Your life in the present has an effect on your eternity. We'll find the next thing we'll see here has to do with with the basis for judgment. And the basis for that in-time judgment when you stand before the throne of Christ is your life in this age. It's the deeds that you have done in the body, on this earth. Prepare for it. Live in light of it. Know that that moment will come. You don't know when it is. It might be soon. It might be what to us feels like a long way away. We don't know. But with certainty, you can know. You have an appointment with the judge of all the earth, and you will stand before him on that day. So brothers and sisters, let's let our lives now reflect our 
confidence of that day coming. And let's live today as we would like to live, knowing that we'll stand before the judge of all the earth. No one escapes the judgment throne of God. Second point, the second major reality is that no deeds escape the judge's eye. No deeds escape the judge's eye. Okay, so everybody has to stand before the the judge, but maybe if I do a really good job of concealing my sins, of hiding my wickedness, or just thinking really bad things but not really acting on them, maybe I'll have a shot because he won't know. No deeds escape the judge's eye. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, middle of verse 12, and books were opened. Books were opened. And then another book was opened. So we have this reference to the book of life. So there's, there's at least two books here, maybe two kinds of books. I think the first, when it says books were opened, these are uh, the books of, uh, of, of deeds. These are the records of human beings' lives, of every human being's life who's ever lived. And then there's the book of life. And we've seen that in Revelation several times before. And the book of life contains the names of those that Christ has redeemed. And we learned earlier that their names were in that book before the foundation of the world. By the sheer grace of Christ, he had placed the names into the book of life. More on that in just a little bit. But this, this second kind of book are these books that are open that contain the records of every human being's life and deeds. Now, of course, this is an image. This is a vision. We don't know exactly what the judgment is going to be like, and I don't think we necessarily need to, need to believe that there will be literal books open, and he's going to have to find our name. Oh, what era did you live in? Okay, and what country did you live in? Okay, and what's the last? Okay, there you are. Now let's look at the deeds, right? I doubt these are literal books that are literally written down. This is the memory, the unfailing perfect memory of God. He knows his creatures, and he knows their lives. And so when these books of deeds are open, it is a clear indication that the lives that we have lived, the deeds of human beings in this lifetime, on this earth, in these bodies, are the basis upon which God will judge them. These deeds, their deeds are the basis of judgment. In Matthew 16, 27, Jesus says of himself, the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Again, Jesus says in John 5, 28 and 29, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So again, speaking there of that d- definitive moment at the end of history, when Christ returns, all will be raised. And when they are raised, they will either be ushered into life because of their righteous deeds, or they'll be ushered into judgment because of their wicked deeds. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what is done in the body, whether good or evil. There's a whole lot more verses, Old Testament and New, that we could cite. But clearly, the deeds of a person in this life form the basis 
of God's judgment on that last day. And we see the repetition in this very passage of according to what they had done. In the middle of verse, end of verse 12, the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And then again at the end of verse 13, they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. The deeds of human beings are the basis of this judgment. It tells us that the sea gave up the dead that was in it. And the sea throughout the Bible is an image of chaos and uh, of, of violence. And so when it says the sea gave up the dead that were in it, it's an indication of, again, of all the human beings, maybe literally bodies who, who were lost at sea or, or buried at sea or whatever, but anywhere within this sort of realm of chaos and death and corruption in this broken world, the dead are given up, right? So the people that we didn't know where they were, whose remains were never found, even them, they are raised, they are found, and they are brought before the judgment seat of, of Christ. And then it says, death and Hades gave up the dead, and they were judged according to their deeds. Now, we've seen hate, death and Hades, even that pair, earlier in Revelation, in chapter 6, verse 8, as the, the seals were being broken on that scroll, it said uh, that there was a pale horse whose rider's name was Death, and Hades followed after him. So death is death. It's the reality that every human being will die because of the fall, as a judgment for sin. And Hades is the realm of the dead. It's the place where, it's sort of the collecting place, if you will, for the souls of the dead in the intermediate state between the, uh, the, their death now and the return of Christ and this resurrection and so in the Old Testament, sometimes it's called Sheol. Um, there's even some thought that, that perhaps there's divisions within the, the place of the dead. And so Hades may be specifically the realm of the, the dead who, have been, who are not believers. And then there's a place within the realm of the dead called Paradise. That's where believing souls go. And that may be what Jesus referred to when he said to the, the thief who died next to him, today you will be with me in paradise. It's the same realm of the dead, but it's maybe a distinction between the, the unbelieving dead and the believing dead. So that, that's maybe a conversation for another day. Um, but when it says that death and Hades gave up the dead, what it's saying is that place, whatever realm and wherever that is, where the souls of those who have died have been held the souls and bodies are now reunited, the bodies resurrected, and everyone is now before the throne of God, and they are judged according to their deeds. And the record, hear this, the record of the deeds of unbelievers, that is, those whose names are not in the book of life, the record of the deeds of unbelievers serves to condemn them before God. And they are cast into the lake of fire. Because the deeds of those who have not believed are proof, are outward objective evidence that they have not lived in faith and that they have not honored God. Indeed, they've rejected him and his gospel. And so the record of the deeds of unbelievers that appear in these books serve to condemn them before God. And it says that they are cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a minute. Friends, this is a sobering reality, 
There's no question. It's, it's not just unpopular to talk about or think about this in our culture. It's hard to think about and talk about, even if we are inclined to believe it and to trust God that it's real and that it's coming. It is hard to stomach. It is not an easy thing to hold in our minds and our souls. And so I think that this sobering reality should affect us in at least two ways. Number one, we should live carefully renouncing sin and pursuing righteousness, knowing that our deeds will one day be accounted for before the judgment throne of Christ should cause us to, to, to live in, in such a way as to, uh, as to not be ashamed when we stand before him. We should live carefully. Our church membership covenant calls us to that, that we will live carefully renouncing worldly lusts. There's a special obligation on us to live a holy life, Right? And partly because of this reality, we know that this day of judgment is coming. We know that the deeds of human beings done in this body will be accounted. And so we should live carefully. And secondly, we should urgently warn unbelievers of the judgment to come. And the effect that their current lives and deeds will have on their eternal destiny. It's, it's compassionate to tell sinners that there's judgment coming. We often think of it the opposite. That sounds too harsh. We're going to hurt somebody's feelings if I tell them that God may judge them for the way they're living. But the truth is, if we withhold that information from them, we are being uncaring. We are being, indeed, cruel in a way. Because we're not warning them of what they will certainly one day face. The evangelist Ray Comfort uses the analogy of being on an airplane, and you've heard that the plane, uh, that, that what's happening... Uh, at the end of this flight, is that everybody's going to have to jump off the plane. But everybody doesn't know that. So you have this kind of inside information. So he said, if I walk up to other passengers on the plane and I have a, uh, uh, you know, a, whatever, the parachute pack, I don't know what you call that thing, the backpack with the parachute in it, and I say, hey, would you take the, would you like to have this, this parachute? If people don't understand that they're going to have to jump off the plane, it's ridiculous to them. No, thanks, we're going to land and I'll just get off the plane. I don't think I need that, right? But if you tell them, hey, I've just learned that we're all going to have to jump off of this plane while it's in mid-flight. Would you like this parachute? It changes the picture, right? Well, now if I know that there's a jumping point coming, the parachute looks a little bit better to me now, doesn't it? And so in, this, in the same way, we should warn sinners that there is a day of judgment that will come and they're going to have to appear before the judgment throne of Christ and give an account for their deeds. And so if they will trust in Christ and rest themselves in what he has done in his life and his death and his resurrection, then they have no need to fear that judgment. And that leads us to the third reality uh, in this passage. So we've seen uh, that no one escapes the judgment throne. We've seen that no deeds escape the judge's eye. The third reality is this. There is only one escape from eternal judgment. The book of life. That's what's given to us in this passage. It's the only escape. The only sort of provision for surviving this judgment is for our names to be found in the book of life. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. 
And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, death and Hades themselves, of course, they're not persons, they're not beings. And so obviously we're in the realm of of symbolism and imagery here. So the notion of death and Hades themselves being cast into the lake of fire demonstrates that that realm ceases to exist. Its, Its services are no longer needed. Everybody's been raised. There's nobody that need. There's nowhere that needs to hold the souls of the dead waiting the resurrection because the resurrection has happened. So death is no longer happening, and uh, the uh, the the realm of the dead holding the dead is no longer needed. And so, the verdict handed down at this judgment sends individuals to their eternal, unalterable, resurrected state, either in hell or on the new earth and the new heaven. And all the wicked judged on the basis of their deeds are thrown into the lake of fire. So as the deeds of the unrighteous have demonstrably condemned them before God, they are then cast into the lake of fire, which I'd remind you is the same place where Satan, the beast, and the false prophet will reside. In the age to come, we were told that at the end of chapter 19, that the beast and false prophet were thrown there. We were told that uh, in chapter 20, verse 10, that, the, that Satan himself was thrown there as well. And so all of the wicked, that is all those who have not trusted in Christ, and who then stand before his judgment throne without a mediator, without someone to account for them, will be sent to the same eternal destination as Satan and his agents. It's called the the lake of fire, and we shouldn't necessarily think that that means that that it's literally a place where people are are, are burning. The fire, I don't think, is necessarily intended to convey to us what this place actually looks like. The point is that it is unending conscious torment. Satan and his demons... And all the wicked, every human being who has rejected God and his gospel and lived in unbelief, will spend their eternity consciously suffering under the wrath of God. Friends, the doctrine of eternal punishment is inescapable in the Bible. If we're going to be people who believe the Bible and who faithfully proclaim it, we cannot skirt around the idea, the truth, the reality that there is an eternal punishment coming for all the wicked. We struggle with it. It's hard to to hold in our minds and, and our hearts at times, but we must affirm that it is true. And we affirm by faith that it is right and it's good. That may be particularly hard for us to see right now because our sense of justice is limited. Our sense of the holiness of God is too small. Our sense of the enormity of human sin is too little. And so perhaps it is hard for us to stomach it or to see this as just because our perspective is all off. John Frame, the the theologian, says this. "We, We might not see the justice of it now, but that is the problem of evil. When we are gathered around the throne, singing God's praises in the eternal state, we will not be raising objections to God's justice, but we will be praising it without reservation. 
So eternal punishment is coming. It's a certain reality for those who reject Christ and who live in unbelief. And we trust that God is right and true and good in making those judgments. And the only ones in this passage where every human being throughout history is raised and standing before the judgment throne of Christ, the only ones who are not thrown into the lake of fire are those whose names are written in the book of life. For believers, this is the final decisive moment of Christ's victory over death. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24 through 26, that the last enemy to be destroyed is death and that Christ must reign until he has defeated all enemies and put all enemies under his feet. So the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And here, death comes to an end. Death is finally, once and for all, put to an end. While the accounting of the deeds of unbelievers was the basis for their condemnation, it served to condemn them before God. The accounting of the deeds of believers is not for the purpose of condemnation, since their presence in the book of life shelters them from the second death. Remember Romans 8.1, a precious verse. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Friend, if you are in Christ, if you have trusted in him and you're resting in his finished work upon the cross and in his resurrection and you're hiding your life in him, then you have no reason to fear condemnation at this judgment throne because Christ already endured that for you. Your condemnation has been removed and your presence in the book of life is a shelter to you from the eternal judgment. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, we saw the book of life mentioned for the first time where uh, Jesus promises, the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. What does he mean by that? He goes on to say, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So to be written in the book of life is to have Jesus as your advocate. He will confess your name before the Father and before his angels. So at this day of judgment, when you stand before him, if your name is found to be in the book of life, he will not blot you out. There will be no deeds uncovered that will make him scratch your name out of it. It's done. It's there. It's settled. If you've trusted in Christ, he has placed your name in the book of life. Not in that order. He placed your name in the book of life before the foundation of the world, and thereby you have trusted in him. And because that is true, when you stand before his throne of judgment, he won't condemn you. He won't scratch your name out of his book. Instead, he advocates for you. He argues on your behalf. He will not cast judgment upon you. So if the, the accounting of believers' deeds is not for the purpose of condemnation, what's it for? I think the believers' deeds are accounted for maybe at least two purposes. Number one, demonstrating the fruit of their new life in Christ. That is to show the good deeds that they have done as evidence 
of regeneration and faith, right? So they've been given new life by the Spirit of God. And we're told throughout the New Testament that the regenerated person, the person who has the life of Christ within them, changes, right? And bears fruit. And so when he accounts for the deeds of believers, it's not to condemn them. It's just the opposite. It's to demonstrate that they're truly his. Look at the fruit of righteousness and the fruit of repentance and the fruit of grace that was alive and working within these people who trusted in Christ. That's the first uh, purpose uh, of the accounting of our deeds is to demonstrate outwardly as evidence that we've trusted in him and that we belong to him. And, and secondly, it, it, there's a sense in which the, the accounting of our deeds is to determine our reward in the new heaven, a new earth. And that's an interesting topic and perhaps a conversation for another day, but there seem to be sort of different levels of reward or capacity for glory and joy in heaven based on the way that, that we've lived in this life, in, in the bodies and in the age that, that he's given us here. So we, we can't get into great detail about that, but there does seem to be an indication that in the new heavens and new earth, there's, there's different degrees of, of reward that believers are given based on their faithfulness to him. And so the accounting of deeds is not for dispensing of, of judgment and condemnation. It's indeed for the, the giving of, of reward. Uh, that will enter into our eternal joy with him, um, uh, rewarded for our, for our faithfulness to him. And so this day comes. We don't know when it will come, but it will certainly come. You will one day stand before the judgment throne of Christ. And those whose faith is in Jesus, those who have repented of their sins, those whose names are written in the book of life, from before the foundation of the world will have no reason to fear that judgment. There is no condemnation to be found. There is no embarrassment or humiliation to be cast upon the believer who stands before the throne of Christ. It is to prove our faith in him and to give us the appropriate reward in eternity. And the only way to be confident that your name is there and to escape the fiery judgment of wrath to come is to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. That's the only way. We're told that our, the, those who are in the book of life had their names written there from before the foundation of the world. But we don't have access to that. We can't look back at that book and go, am I there or not? The only way to know if your name is in the book of, of life is if you're trusting in Christ and repenting of your sins. If you'll trust in him, if you'll admit to God your sin and call upon him to save you and look to Jesus in his atoning death in your place on the cross and rest in him alone by faith, that's evidence that your name is in the book of life. And so when you stand before him on that final day, you have reason to believe that he will find your name there because you trusted upon Christ. J.I. Packer says, knowledge of future judgment is always a summons to present repentance. Only the penitent will be prepared for judgment when it comes. I don't think that Lindsay and David were well prepared for their moment of judgment when their parents came home. It very well may be that they fooled them, that things were back in order enough 
and they had plastered smiles on their faces, perhaps successfully enough that their parents were none the wiser and didn't know what had gone on. But you can't fool the judge of all the earth like that. You can't conceal from the all-seeing eye of the judge the reality in your, in your heart and in your life. He sees it all. He knows it all. The thoughts you think, he hears those thoughts. The desires of your heart, he knows those desires. And here's the thing, friends. If you're resting in Christ and repenting of your sins and trusting in him, he doesn't condemn you for that. What amazing good news. That he could know our deepest thoughts and our deepest desires and the things that we hide from others because we think they're not going to like us. And he welcomes us anyway. Because it's not our righteousness that gains our standing before him. It's the righteousness of Christ that he gives us as a gift by faith. Trust in him and show yourself to be written in the Lamb's book of life. And you'll be spared this uh, judgment of the second death. Let me conclude with an exhortation uh, that, that spotlights the essential importance of the church in preparing you for that day of judgment to come. It's one thing to think of your own life and to sort of make individual uh, you know, um, restitution or to think, okay, I need to get right with God and, and, and mind my P's and Q's and, and try to honor God in my, in my own life. That, that's one thing. But the fact is that God has, has placed us into a community into a, into a church body. And he intends for us to carry out uh, the hardships of this life together. I'm going to read to you from Hebrews chapter 10. These are verses you may know well. But Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 25. It says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What day is that? It's the day of judgment. It's the day that we stand before Christ on this great white judgment throne. We know that day is coming. It's drawing nearer and nearer. And as it draws near, we ought to live with one another and encourage one another in such a way that we are helping each other to make it to that day ready. That's what the church is all about. As the church gathers together on the Lord's day and we sing songs of praise and we, we hear the word of God and we, we take the elements of the Lord's Supper and we baptize those who are, are recently converted in, in, to the faith as a symbol of their belonging to the people of God and to that kingdom that's to come. As the church lives together and carries out those sort of ordinary means of grace, if you will, in the life of, uh, of the church, we are helping each other to prepare for the day of judgment. That's exactly what Hebrews 10.25 means. Don't neglect assembling together. Encourage one another. Consider how you might stir others up to love and good deeds because the day of judgment is drawing near. The only way to be prepared for that day is to find yourself hidden in Christ, resting in his finished work. And the only way to be confident in that journey is to share it with brothers and sisters in the church. That's why he's given us this body. So, friends, let me call you uh, to, to commit yourself to the regular gathering of the saints and the life of this community. 
as we help each other to arrive on that day before God's throne ready. Let's pray.